Uh, here we go. Besides God, name some of the characters that are active during the tribulation period. Okay, Satan's, could you, Satan, I, I, this is my list. Satan's obviously very active. The two, who'd you say? The two witnesses are going to be up, should be active, they will be active. Antichrist is going to be very active. Okay, the 144,000. Okay, um, the character who's involved with that is I do have up there the, the uh, whore, is what she's called, yeah. Who? Yeah, we have, I put up angels. Let's go. Kings of the north, king of the south. Okay, they're, they're going to be involved in the battle at the middle. The harlot, uh, the leaders of the ten-nation confederacy. Remember, they get power for a little bit of time. In fact, who comes out of the ten-nation confederacy? The Antichrist. He comes out of them. The two prophets, the angels we talked about, Satan, false prophets, 144,000. And Antichrist gets the most press in the book of Revelation, he and Satan. We are in Revelation 11. And in Revelation 11, we're talking exactly about two of these individuals. That is the two prophets in particular. We have already spent time talking about the uh, many other characters. If you're visiting with us and you're unfamiliar with the term that I'm using, the tribulation is the last seven years before Jesus Christ returns physically to earth. During that period of seven years, it is called the worst time in human history. More death, more disease, more destruction, more natural disaster than any other time. And Jesus said, except he were to come and stop it, mankind would be totally destroyed. This is future to us sometime. And so we've been talking about some of the characters who are involved with it. And we've talked about several of these characters already. We focused in on those who are fighting for the Lord on his side. And that is uh, the 144,000. You know, when I say this, I, I, it's a, it's, um, <clears throat> I, I need to make sure I, I relayed the truth correctly in this regard. When we say there is one side, there is God. And on the other side, there is Satan, his, his hordes. When I say that, that is true. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that God is struggling to overcome Satan. Satan is nothing compared to God Almighty. Let's keep this in perspective. Satan is like a canoe going against a battleship. Okay, there isn't, a, there isn't, it isn't like, okay, God's really got to work hard to be able to pull out a victory and it's going to be a split decision. God created Satan. They're on two different planes but the Lord and what he's allowing to be happening at this time, <clears throat> there is that, <clears throat> excuse me, that spiritual, excuse the terminology, that cosmic battle that's taking place. And so we don't want to minimize or max, minimize God or maximize, maximize Satan. But in, in this contest that God is allowing for a period of time as he is testing mankind and judging mankind and giving them opportunity to choose, um, there is, God is allowing Satan to have some of his heyday moments. And at, at any moment, God could stop him. At any, in fact, when Jesus gets involved personally and actively, what does he have to do in order to overcome Satan? Speak but a word. Speak but a word. That's it. I mean, that's the comparison of, the, of these two leaders on opposite sides. It's just, it's such, it's such a contrast and such a difference. But when we say, okay, they're on opposite sides, don't get the impression that means that Satan is as powerful as God during this time. He's not. <clears throat> uh, let's go on. The two, two prophets. Here's where we are at. Revelation 11. It starts off in this section, that there was given unto me a reed like unto a rod, the angel stood saying, Rise, measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship, excuse me, 
get rid of my phone here. Um, but the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread under for 42 months. That's our scene. We're in the second half of the tribulation, which is seven years. 42 months is three and a half years. He goes on, I will give power unto the two witnesses, and they shall prophesy for 1260 days, three and a half years. 42 months, clothed in sackcloth. These are two olive trees, two candlesticks standing before God, symbolism that he uses for them that we'll see in a moment. If any man will hurt them, fire will proceed out of their mouth and devour their enemies. If any will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut up heaven, that it might not rain in the days of their prophecy, to have power over the waters, to turn them to blood, to smite the earth with all plagues. This, la- this next phrase is the key phrase in that verse. As... Okay, there, there's no, in other words, there's no limitation. Their power that God gives them is phenomenal. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit to make war against them, that's Antichrist, shall overcome them and kill them. Their body shall lie in the street of the great city, Jerusalem, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their bodies to be put in the graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice, make merry, send gifts, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, then the spirit of life from God will reenter into them. And they stood up on their feet. By the way, anybody notice something with the verb tense? This is future, but what verb tense is he using in verse 11? Past tense, why? It is so certain in the mind of God that it's past tense. Okay, And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying, Come up hither, and they ascended up into the clouds, and their enemies beheld them. This passage, by the way, has created a lot of confusion for a number of years in the sense that all their enemies will see them lie in the street, and then everybody will see them rise again. For a number of generations, people are wondering, how is that possible? It must not be literal. How is it possible in our day and age to be a literal fulfillment? that everybody would view this. The technology of our day, right? Can we view events around the world at any moment? Yeah, okay. So this passage used to be a struggle for a lot of commentators. If you go back into the old different type of commentaries that are coming up through the centuries, until in recent century, all of a sudden it's like, okay, there's no conflict with this passage anymore. There's no having to re-explain how he's saying everyone's going to see them. It's very obvious. Here's what we have. Is it starts off in the text that God has John measure the temple. In other words, this is God's property. God's in charge of this. Um, even though he's going to let some overrun it for a period of time, it still belongs to the Lord. It's his property. It's his measuring stick. At the time that this prophecy is made, remember, there is no temple. John is told to measure something that doesn't exist because it was destroyed some 25 years before John's prophecy here on the Isle of Patmos. And so John is being told that what's going to happen is the Jews are going to get back on the land and the Jews are going to rebuild to the point that they are going to be able to have their temple. So they'll live in peace, they'll live in prosperity for an extended period of time. So from John perspective, having seen and lived through the idea of the temple being destroyed in 70 AD, he's being reassured it's going to come back. And so that's an important prophecy that God is saying to John and the Jewish nation who are hearing the gospel for the first time and then reading this later on. 
what do we learn about these, par- these characters that uh, some of the things that we've already mentioned are going to be witnesses during the second half, okay, in the, in the tribulation, they're going to be very powerful figures, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> they are clothed in sackcloth and ashes, and the reason that they might be looking as if they're mourning is the temple has, is being overrun. In this setting where they're ministering, the temple is a sacred spot. It belongs to the Lord. But in the second half of the tribulation, it's going to be overrun by Antichrist. And so their mourning at that time is that part of this facility has been taken over by evil for a temporary period of time. And so what you have is they're described as the two candlesticks. I mentioned this last week in reference, that that two candlesticks, the two olive branches, is what comes out of Zechariah's prophecy as the people are rebuilding Israel and trying to restore Israel in the Old Testament, that what happens is there's a, pro, there's a, a high priest and a, a governor at that time. You have Joshua. That's not the Joshua who wrote the book, Joshua. This is a, a different character. Joshua and Zerubbabel, who are leading the revival of the Jews, rebuilding and reestablishing themselves as a nation. And God talks about them being filled with oil that is coming out of the olive trees directly, that there's piping, so to speak, from the olive trees directly to these two lights, these two illuminaries who are standing up, and the idea is that the Spirit of God is assisting them in this spiritual work, enabling them. And so he references this idea that God is empowering these two prophets in much the same way. They're seen in, <coughs> excuse me, the word is standing before him, the idea is serving him, you know, in, the, in a spiritual sense that they're offering, but God protects them special. These two have great abilities. We're in the time of persecution. And remember, a lot of people are getting saved during this time period, the 144,000. But the multitude are being killed. We looked at this last week, Revelation 7, Revelation 14, that many of them, they have shed their own blood for the cause of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so these two are going to be attacked as well. And they're going to protect themselves. Death will come upon their persecutors. And they have the miraculous ability to withhold rain. They'll change the water to blood. That's why many people identify these two with what Old Testament prophets. What Old Testament prophet, when you think of water turning to blood, comes to mind? Moses. When you think of holding back rain for an extended period of time, Say Elijah because we've just been preaching on it. Okay, and you remember. Okay, so those, those, that's why many identify these two. Okay, and the other reason they identify Elijah and Moses is because uh, did Elijah ever die? No. And so that's, there's identification given this way. And what other passage brings up Elijah and Moses? The transfiguration. Transfiguration is the other passage, and so some will see that. We'll, we'll get to that in a few moments. It's a clear reminder to everybody when he's giving this prophecy that these two are very powerful prophets because Moses is considered the great Old Testament prophet. Elijah was considered the second greatest prophet. So very clearly God is saying, okay, these, these men have these ministries very similar. And as I said, the key phrase that I think is their miracle ability is where it says very clearly, as often as they would that these fellows are, are able to do a whole lot. Um, do you remember in the book of Acts, the disciples and the apostles, when they had the, the Holy Spirit and the gift of the spirits, it's, for instance, the gift of miracles to be able to heal people? Okay. Could they, did they frequently heal people in the book of Acts? Yes. Okay. Did they heal everybody they could? Now, when Jesus did healings, he healed everybody that came to him. Did they, in the book of Acts, heal everybody that came to him? that we see. 
There's a lot in the book of Acts, but there's a story given in the book of uh, Philippians that Paul's companion, Epaphroditus, died. And what could Paul do for him? He almost died because of his illness. Paul could not heal him. So my point is that even the great apostle Paul and those who had the gift of healings, they were limited. And those miracle gifts were limited. What's God stressing with these two prophets? There's no limitation. These guys are, these are on-call abilities that they are, they are really powerful, powerful prophets and preachers. And so what they do is, they, what happens is, they get killed during this time period, and they preach in a way that upsets a lot of people, and they're defending themselves, but eventually Antichrist, who comes to power in the middle of the tribulation, and takes over the, uh, the temple. He's going to make war against these individuals. And he will, in fact, he will, this, by the way, in the book of Revelation. We've talked all about Antichrist, but this is his first reference in the book of Revelation. What happens is Antichrist will overcome them. They will be killed. So Antichrist has a great amount of power, a great ability that he's able to um, overcome these two prophets. And as a result of their martyrdom, what happens is a couple different things, okay, is they're not given a burial. <clears throat> and again, this is very different world and mindset that if you want to show disdain for somebody in that part of the world, do what they did to the American soldiers in years gone by. Just leave their bodies out. Let their bodies be ravaged. That is a sign of great disrespect uh, in that part of the world. And so they'll do that. Okay, and they'll have, they'll have a, a, a Christmas celebration. I don't know how else to call it. Everybody's going to give gifts to one another. So you know that they were hated. You know that the society as a whole is really given to anti whatever they, were pre- whatever they will preach. And so they have this celebration. And, uh, and, and just a note that I wanted you to catch that this is the only time in the book of Revelation that the unsaved or those who are following Antichrist rejoice. There's no other reference to them having joy. There's reference to them having anger and bitterness and pain, but this is the only one. In the prophets then, as a result that their world is celebrating, the prophets after three and a half days will rise again. What, who's, who, who does this parallel to? Closely. Okay, Jesus Christ, that idea of three days after three days. And so the Spirit of the Lord is going to re-enter into these individuals and they're going to rise up. And when they rise up, it says that great fear falls upon everybody. Okay, and you say, okay, why is everybody so afraid? Antichrist just killed them. Well, that's the point. Antichrist killed them, but they didn't stay dead. Okay, what does that say about anti- What does that say to Antichrist? Yeah, you're limited Antichrist, absolutely. That you can't stop these guys. This is, like a, a, this is like a flood and you're trying to keep it back from coming into your house and it's just like impossible that the water is seeping in. These two guys can't be stopped, is the point. And immediately they're called up into heaven. Question that some commentators say they don't understand why God doesn't leave them on the world to continue their witness. Any response to that? Any answer? What's that? There's ministry is done. Uh, from a practical point of view, wouldn't their ascension into heaven that everybody sees, wouldn't that be a tremendous witness already? You know, just impacting individuals. And so the world's going to see this. <clears throat> How do they deny this miracle? 
how do they, how do they say it's not happening when it's just you know it's broadcast everybody knows what's going on and so there's other things that happen if you read the rest of the passage there are some other miraculous events that take place there's going to be a great earthquake in Jerusalem that takes place much of the city is going to be destroyed 7000 are going to die so we're getting a lot of different details of what's what's going on here this is a massive earthquake uh, and it's going to happen right at the same time so all of a sudden when these two are, two rise up and they ascend into heaven, by the way, was there any earthquakes related with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? Okay, and ascension. Okay, yeah, there was, a, there was remember the, the strange things that happened around his death and uh, that period of time, there was a great earthquake and then what happened with some of the tombs around Jerusalem? They opened up and what happened? Some of the people visited and we don't get any details about all of that. But there was a lot of consecutive miracles taking place. Here there's the same type of thing. A lot of different interna- uh, um, interaction from the divine world that's going to be all of a sudden stirring up a lot of things and bringing, seems like it's bringing everything to this climactic point of Armageddon where there's going, there's going to, the showdown is now going to be, this is it. Okay, we've got a lot of the tension. It's been building up. Antichrist thought he won. You know, he resurrected in the middle of the three of the tribula, tribulation, he came back from the dead. <clears throat> he puts down his his two greatest enemies. They come back from the dead. So there's a lot of miracles going on during this time period, and so it leads to that high point of Armageddon starts taking place. Now the questions that many people have are: Who are these two prophets? Moses and Elijah are usually suggested. And uh, there's some reasons for that. We've already highlighted that, you know, there's talked about prophecy, about coming before the time of the Lord, transfiguration, things like that. And it could be, it could be. The only struggle I have with it is this. It says, it is appointed unto man once to die. So who does that take out of this picture? Moses, because did Moses die? Yeah, and according to Jude, uh, some of the demons, I'm sorry, Satan himself, and the angel Michael, they were confronting or had a conflict over the body of Moses. And so it, I, I, don't, I don't know about Elijah, but it sure doesn't seem like it would be Moses. But again, it could be people very much like them, just two different individuals. A lot of people say that, you know, here are some other suggestions. I don't know. And quite frankly, you don't know either. We just don't know. Any guess is kind of like, okay, speculation only. What we do know is that they are unique individuals, unique prophets in their time, and God uses them in a great way. So we bring this to you out and say, okay, here's what we got, that we can bring this to a, to a conclusion in Revelation 11. God never leaves himself without a witness. Even in the darkest and the most wicked time, he has very clear witnesses yeah, for what is truth. It is very clear, which this to me is again an amazing thought. God wants all people to be saved, even the people who are doing such great evil at this time period, in that second half of the tribulation, who are killing off the saints. He is still giving a witness to these individuals, hoping that they would change. God uses a combination of the catastrophes um, and, and his word to draw people to him. There is catastrophes in, the, in this passage. The prophets are using the, uh, the drought, the withholding the rain. They are using a lot of these miracles, and God is substantiating their witness. God does do that. God does combine catastrophes, what people look at as catastrophes, with a gospel witness to bring people to himself. And even the great evil that men can do, like Antichrist and his evil, God reverses it. This is the God we worship. That even though there's moments where it looks like he's been overcome, 
like Calvary, it looked like he was overcome, and, it, and, and he rises again. Even Antichrist looks like he's won because he kills the prophets. God is the victor. The, the body, you know, it's not a, a trite phrase, it's not a cliche, but we are on the winning side. That, I mean, that is a tremendous confidence and thought that our God will win the victory. There, this whole spiritual conflict is not up in the air. God is going to be the victor. Now, in the process is what's up in the air. But eventually, God is going to be the victor and he limits evil as he does. Now, we've talked about the tribulation period. Can we just, can we just kind of bring it all together for just a moment here? Some thoughts about the tribulation, some observations. During this conflict of this seven years, it is very, very intense that there is this serious conflict between the Lord and satanic sides battling each other. There are human allies on both ends. Okay, people will be working, the 144,000, as well as Antichrist, the false prophet. And so there's going to be this, this battle that's going to be in the heavenlies as well as in the earthly. That's going to be taking place. The major weapon of choice that both sides are using are miracles and wonders. And that will lead to a lot of the deception that takes place because some people think if there's a miracle, it's got to be of God. That's not true. Can Satan do miracles? Yes, okay. And so there's going to be a tremendous amount of deception, but there's also going to be a great amount of truth propagated. And that's going to be by the 144,000, by Revelation 14, talks about angels even giving the witnesses. We have Revelation 11, the two witnesses, and it's going to be spread worldwide. People will hear about them. Despite the great evil, and this is the, the encouraging part, despite the great evil of the book of tribulation and what happens in that time period, uh, or in the era of tribulation, what happens in that, in that time period, people can still live for the Lord. If they can live for the Lord in the midst of such evil and adversity in that time period, what's the obvious conclusion for us? then we can live for the Lord in what we are engaged in. So um, we, we can find hope, we can take heart in this whole situation. So what we've talked about already is we've talked about a lot of different prophecy. And before we jump into the next event, I want to back up. And usually I, I, whenever we've taught this, we've done it the reverse. And this time I thought I'd want to do a little bit different. There is a keystone of prophecy, just like that keystone state. Okay, The others were kind of built upon, that keystone in a bridge in a building that others are relying upon and building upon. There is a keystone passage of scripture it's in, Deuter- um, in the book of Daniel chapter 9. A lot of you are familiar with it, but at the same time, if we don't understand it in its full context, it's going to throw us off. But now that you have a whole understanding and you have a basic game plan and idea of the chronology of the book of Revelation, let's jump to Daniel 9. Now some of you are going to say, boy, this is too difficult to understand. That's not true. When you see things that initially look difficult, if you think about them in context, if you think about them and what they're in, in how they're laid out, it really isn't as difficult. Let me give you an illustration. This is a note I wrote. What does it say? Now, there's a lot of things missing, but I bet you you could read this. Right? I think that the folk of Faith Baptist Church are fabulous people or participles. No, it's people. Okay. Many are kind and sweet and appear to love God's word. I greatly appreciate the members who are usually very cheerful and most of them seem to enjoy 
getting together with for fellowship. Many are very active in church activities and ministries, which is a blessing. And most pay, pay, okay, pay pretty good attention to the preaching most of the time, okay? There's a lot of things missing, but how is it you can read that? You, you just, you understand, okay? You, you can piece it together. That's the same way with God's Word. Don't get intimidated by people who say you can't understand. I was talking to a couple yesterday at length, <clears throat> and uh, they were involved in a church where the pastor said that he and only a select few can fully understand salvation. And it's such a complicated situation of who God has chosen and who hasn't chosen that he and a few have been given the insight, like nobody else, to understand salvation. And therefore, he told his church, you need to listen to me very closely or you can't be saved. Because I and, and a special few are the only ones that can tell you what real salvation is. Is that a dangerous heresy? Yeah, very much. To me, that sounds very cultic. Very cultic. And so, you know, and, and yet at the same time, you know, we, we almost buy into some of this idea that, oh, the Bible's too hard to understand. Yeah, let's, let's take it. Let, let's be real. Are there some difficult passages? Yeah. Is the book of Revelation difficult? Yeah. It's not your first reading, second reading, third reading, fourth reading, and you're building and building and building, but you, you can understand it. Daniel 9 is one of those that people say, oh, it's way too hard to understand. And to me, it's just a very, and it's not because of anything special, but because of other pastors that have passed on the truth. I don't think it's that difficult. I know that most of you understand it very clearly. Let's go to Daniel 9 and understand what he's giving in giving the future events and understand what Daniel is talking about. And again, if you got this passage down, you've got a lot of the end times down for good. And this is a critical, critical passage you understand. Before we read the two or three verses that deal with it, let's set up our scene. Let's remember Old Testament. You're in the years of Daniel. You are sitting with Daniel in Babylon. What's the scenario? In the years that you've been, you've been living, your nation, your people have been following what's called Sabbath laws. There are Sabbath laws that are from the book of Leviticus that they were supposed to follow ever since Exodus that they said that every so often they're supposed to have a Sabbath year. Every seventh year the land was to lie dormant and be refreshed. It was good agrarian wisdom and yet it was also a spiritual aspect that what they do what, what the spiritual aspect is you farm, you labor, but on the seventh year your land lies dormant. What would you have to do as an individual? What would this call for you to exercise Not besides work. Preparation. Okay, preparation. Preparation because you have to prepare. You can't just say, okay, okay, but God said, I'm going to provide the bounty that you'll have enough in six years and that'll carry you through the seventh year where you're not doing regular farming. Okay, so you're going to have to do some preparation. What else? Somebody else said it. Faith. Faith. You're going to have to trust God in this one. And just rely on God. And so he promised that he would prosper and he would send the early, the latter rain. If you do what's right, I'll take care of you. Even you'll have a year's break. Which, by the way, if we were under that system, wouldn't that be cool? Every seven years was a year of vacation. Okay, We would hate that. Right. But the problem is, we, we, we throw stones at the, at the Jews. 
that would require a lot of faith on us, on our part. Especially the, the, the many of you who, man, oh, days, you know, you say, and, and we hear this a lot, that say, you know, I get tired of just sitting around. Okay, so it would be a challenge. It would be difficult. And then on top of that, he said, not only every seventh year, but remember the cyclical fashion of this? Then after every group of seven, you had what was called the Jubilee year. Okay, that 50th year. And that 50th year, all the land reverts back to the original landholder family. All the debts were canceled. Okay, and you say, wait a minute, how would this work? I would take out a mortgage on year number 48. Right? And because all God had this all systematized. Again, it's a matter of faith and it's a matter of canceling debts. If you were the one who they owed to, this would be a huge matter of faith. And so it was something that the Jews were supposed to follow. Did they follow it? Yes, no, sometimes, never. What do you think? Some, yeah, all the above, okay. Probably sometimes is the best. For the bulk of the Old Testament, okay, the bulk of the era of time throughout that they were in the land, when they got into the conquest and after the judges and took over, the uh, Sabbath laws were to be in place, but, but the Jews very seldom even read about them, followed them. There was, it was there, but they didn't do them. And so what happens after a period of time is God in Second Chronicles points out that for the 500 years, basically, they haven't been observing the Sabbath laws, which he said, okay, you've, you've not given me my year. You've not given me the, the ground hasn't been fallowed. You haven't given me that one year. They stole from God. And so God is basically saying that what you did during that period of time is you missed 70 Sabbath years during a lot of this Old Testament history. And so you owe me 70 Sabbath years. The land hasn't been fallow for 70 years. So what he did is God said, I'm taking you out of the land and I'm going to leave this land dormant and it's going to be no farming, no nothing for how many years? 70 years. He made it very clear to them. And, he's, and in, the, uh, in the prophecies that Jeremiah gives, Jeremiah says, okay, the way God's going to get you out of the land is he's going to use the Babylonians. They're going to come. They're going to take you out of the land. You're going to be captives, and you're going to stay in captivity for 70 years because you owe God 70 Sabbaths. So that was a prediction. Some of this happened in Daniel's lifetime. Daniel was a young man when the 70 years kicked off. And so what happens is there's several invasions by the Babylonians. We give you the historical time that, that they came. And the first invasion was when Daniel and a lot of the nobility's kids were taken out of Jerusalem and taken over to Babylon. Basically, they were taken as slaves. But they were given, they were given royal treatment. They were political hostages for the most part. We're going to take all your, your, the upper crust of society. We're going to take your kids and we're going to keep them in Babylon. And if you revolt, your kids might die. So what happened is that was the threat. But the Jews didn't, didn't you know, succumb to it. And so they revolt a second time. And so there's a second invasion. When they come in the second time, they take away a whole bunch more people, more of the middle class people. That's when what other prophet gets hauled away? Begins with an E and ends with an eel and a Zeke in the middle. Okay. He gets taken out. He and a lot of the middle class folk get hauled away. 
And still what's left back here, they rebelled the third time. And so when Babylon comes back the third time, they totally wipe out the city. There's nobody left. They take everybody. The only ones who are left, basically, they flee to, anybody remember where? They go down to Egypt. And Jeremiah is preaching to this group and says, don't go, don't go. Trust God, trust God. They take Jeremiah and they flee down into Egypt. And what happens to all the Jews that, that run to Egypt? Do you remember historically? They go to Egypt for protection to get away from the chastisement and every one of them is killed in Egypt. The only ones who survive are the ones who are taken into captivity who are going to be allowed to return later on. And so what happens in this case is you have the first, the first invasion. When Daniel is taken away, it's 605. That's, that's important in dating because what happens is in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is reading Okay, his Bible. He's reading Jeremiah. Isn't that interesting? Jeremiah's writings have, have, are circulating at this point. And he's reading in the book of Jeremiah, and it's a number of years later. In fact, if you put 605 and jump down to 537 when he's reading the prophecy, we're at about how many years have gone by? Yeah, about 68, 69 years. And he's reading at the time that we are going to be in captivity for how many years, did we say? 70 years. He's a smart man. Remember, Daniel's a pretty, pretty sharp dude. What does he figure in his mind, or what does he question? What would you question? How many years are left? Well, you know the number of years is going to be one or two, if you believe God's word, but what, then what's your next question? Okay. Basically, then what? Yeah, yeah. Are we going to, what's going to happen? We're supposed to be freed at the 70 year mark. We're supposed to be freed. And we're going to be done with captivity. You're a Jew. Think this through. You're a Jew. You've got God's word that captivity ends in a year, year and a half. And you're going to be restored. What are you thinking might, could come back or could happen? What have they been looking for all the time? The Messiah? Who brings what with him? Political entity. His kingdom. His kingdom. So Daniel, knowing the prophecies, and by the way, did Daniel prophesy that there would be a kingdom with Messiah ruling? Oh yeah, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 4. And so Daniel is reading this, and Daniel's first thought is, okay, we're, you know, exactly what's going to happen. The deadline is coming up. You know, whether, how many months, how many days, but it's going to happen, and then What? So he's reading Jeremiah, and he prays to God. He says, God, please reveal to me what's going to happen. That's Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 9, as God sends the angel Gabriel and says, okay, here's what's going to happen. According to the, uh, the events, let me explain, Daniel, what's going to happen next in history. You know, is it the kingdom? And he basically says, not yet. Not yet. And he starts off in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. He says, 70 weeks are yet determined upon your people and upon your holy city to finish. I'm reading King James now. If you have a different translation, some of your translations will read different in this text. Okay, To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And so he's telling him what the next time frame is. He's giving him statistical data. 
He's giving him years in this passage and telling him some of the facts. <clears throat> in fact, the Gabriel is going to make clear, and he says basically these thoughts, okay? We are talking about the Jews and Jerusalem. That's what I'm going to tell you about. These are, this is what's determined for your people and the holy city, okay? And remember, at this moment, there is no holy city. Jerusalem has been destroyed back in 586, it's been destroyed. The Jewish people who are, have survived those attacks, those three attacks around 600, the, the Jewish people are in Babylon. And so the angel is going to start telling them, here's what's going to happen to your people and to your holy city Jerusalem, which isn't at all existing at this moment. And he tells them that, okay, there are 70 weeks, literally 77s are determined. He doesn't give us anything beyond that. He doesn't give us, uh, he doesn't say years. He doesn't say days or weeks. He's using a phrase, 77s in the Hebrew are determined. In other words, 70 times 7 is 490 something are determined upon your people. And, uh, and he says, then after those, there's 490 and it's, there's 490 before something comes. That something that comes is the finishing of transgression, end of sins, reconciliation, bringing in everlasting righteousness, sealing up the vision. Sealing up means bringing to pass the idea. To anointing the most holy. Who's the most holy? Okay, it's going to be the Messiah. Okay, so what you have is basically saying there's 490 until all these things happen, these six different items. These six different items, if you look at them, these are the completion of, or the beginning of, the, I should say, the installation, inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth. That Messiah is anointed. That there's an end to sin. That there is, the, the atonements are all done. Okay? It's, it's all wrapped up. We are now entering into that universal holiness and time of, of peace, and Messiah is going to rule. So there are 490 something determined before the kingdom of God. That's the first thing that Daniel needs to know. Okay, that the end of the 70-year captivities doesn't mean the kingdom's coming. There's 490 years yet. I'm, I'm putting in years. Okay, there's 490-something before that kingdom. So that was the first thing that answered Daniel's, Daniel's thinking. Okay, um, is, okay, it's not coming right now. We're not, we're not going to see the kingdom right away. The question that comes up is, why do we say yours? Okay, and keep just a couple of simple thoughts in mind. He's dealing with 70 years of captivity. That's the context. The missing letters in the note I gave you, you put them together because context. You just know. Daniel's reading about years. That's been the whole prophecy has been years, years, years. 70 years, years, years. Sabbath years, years, years. It's in context. It's dealing with years. And so the angel just jumps right in and leaves out the phrase or the letter, but you're able to read it because you know the context. As well, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, you and I have hindsight because it's 2020. We know that according to the book of Revelation, when he talks about that last period of time that's split in two, we read in the book of Revelation several times that talks about that last seven years split in two as being 42 months, 1260 days. We know that the rest of the Bible helps us to understand with 2020 vision that these have to be years because he uses days and months to describe only a portion of the last seven years. 
So he's talking about 490 years are determined before the kingdom of God comes in place. And he points out something else in the prophecy. And as we're dissecting and putting it together, he gives us details of these 490 years. Here's the beginning of it. He's told you the end of it when it stops. He's giving you the beginning of the 490 years in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven sevens and 62 sevens. The street shall be built again, the wall, even during troublous times. And after the set of the 62 sevens, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Okay, taking just those phrases, what he's shown us is this. He, in God's mind, divides the 490 years into three phases. There's a period of time, seven sevens, 49 years. There is 62 sevens, or 434 years. Okay, and then the, he talks about the last week in the next couple verses. That's seven years. Add them all together, and what do you have? 490 years. Okay, so God divides them into, into different spots. He says they, the 490-year countdown starts with the commandment to go and restore Jerusalem. Remember, at the moment, Daniel's here. The people are here. There is no Jerusalem and he's saying there's going to come a commandment. When it comes, it's going to kick off. Here we go. The, you know, the uh, stopwatch is starting. 490 years from the commandment to restore, to go back home and start rebuilding. The, then he says, okay, that's going to initiate the, the beginning uh, phase, the first 49 years of it. Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, he says, during times of distress that Jerusalem is going to be built. It's going to not go easy, in other words, for rebuilding Jerusalem. Think with me, the rebuilding of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. They're rebuilding the walls. Was it easy or was there opposition? There was a lot of opposition. Tremendous amount of opposition. That's what he's predicting. You're going to go back and you're going to rebuild, but there's going to be opposition. And so what happens, he says then, okay, you're going to go back, you're going to start rebuilding. You have the first 49 years, and then you have a successive 62 years or 483 years. And in this time period... Um, I have my, my math is wrong there. I added the 49 into the 62 already. Uh, so bringing up to 483, the two combined. Uh, then he says, what's going to happen? Then Messiah is going to show up. And Messiah is going to be cut off. The word is slain, murdered, brutalized. Okay, is the idea. <laughs> now think from Daniel's perspective. Messiah is supposed to show up and he's supposed to be victor, conqueror. What's this prophecy saying? He's going to come and he's going to be looking like he's defeated. He's going to suffer sacrifice. But, he, but he, the, the, this is for you and me. He doesn't die for himself. He dies for... See, we got 2020 vision on this verse. Who does he die for? Yeah, okay. So this is a prediction that, G, that Messiah will come and he'll be sacrificed, but not because he's done anything wrong. His sacrifice is going to be vicarious... Okay, that is in our place, propitional, okay, that he's going to take our place. And so, again, here's another one of those passages that teaches Messiah is going to come, he's going to suffer. For the Jews, that was really, really hard to swallow in the Jesus' ministry. His apostles, how many times did he say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die? And they go, what? 
They just didn't understand it. They, it was just too hard for them. And so you have that idea. And then he goes on, he says, okay, Messiah is going to be cut off. And then he says in the middle of verse 26, uh, the people of the prince that shall come shall do what to the city? Destroy Jerusalem and what else? What's that mean? The temple. Okay, so he, Daniel's hearing this prophecy that say we're going to go back, we're going to rebuild the city, and we're going to rebuild the temple, but then sometime in the future it's going to be destroyed once again. And Messiah will be cut off. Messiah will be, will be killed during that time period. The questions that we have is, okay, we have 2020 vision. So just some of this has already taken place. Some of this is past tense to you and me. Okay? So we have that, that first two phases, that together, the 62 and the seven sevens. They, they formulate 483 years combined. Okay? Did this happen? Did, was there a, a decree to go back? Was there a passing of 483 years? And after that, did Messiah come? Was he cut off? Was the city destroyed? Was the temple destroyed? And right away you have to say... Yes, absolutely. The question comes to when did it happen? Okay, what, what is it? Because there's different decrees in the Old Testament that we know of. There's three different decrees that were given in the Old Testament when the Jews were told, go back. So they were told to go back, and then they were told to stop, and then they were told they could go back, and they were told that they could build in phases. Remember, Dan, uh, Nehemiah has to have a decree to build the walls. It was one thing to build the city. It was one thing to build the temple. But to build walls, almost you were declaring what if you build walls? You know, sovereignty, independence. You're going to be your own entity. So politically, this came in phases. And so the question that you and I have is this, okay? Is it accurate to say that with... 536 uh, decree or 520 of 458, does it fit 483 years later, does it fit that prophecy, Messiah came, Messiah was cut off, Jerusalem was destroyed, and so was the temple. So if you take it and say, okay, let's work with 536, the first decree, and we add together, we add the seven sevens, the 62 sevens, and we say, okay, where, where does that take us to? Right about 53 B.C., Okay, 53 B.C., did Messiah come after 53 B.C.? Yeah, did Jerusalem get destroyed after 53 B.C.? The answer is yes. Okay, if we say, okay, what about the, the, uh, the next decree? Okay, what if we went to the decree 520? And we say, okay, 483 years added to that, we're about 37 B.C. Oh, it still fits. It still fits that after that, Messiah came, Messiah was cut off, the city was destroyed. Then you say, well, what about the 458 B.C.? Well, if you take this one, which has gotten the most serious consideration by Bible scholars, that all of a sudden what it does is it projects us into 25 A.D. Okay? Is this a possibility? It is. It is with this, with this part. When we say Messiah came... Is it referring to his birth? Or what other could it refer to? His, your, his baptism, declaration, or what other event? Remember when he comes into Jerusalem and they cry, Hosanna, and he's presenting himself as Messiah? 
you remember that? Okay. Um, so that could fit. In fact, there's been a lot of work done that says, oh, put it together and it's right about the same week, the same day. And some of that is, you know, it, it gets very convoluted in trying to work out days and figures. But there is that possibility that any one of these decrees, depending upon what you define as when Messiah came, they seem to fit. The point is, Messiah comes and he fulfills and then what happens is he's there, he's cut off, and then there's the destruction of Jerusalem. So the first part of this prophecy is very, very, very important. Now here's the question. Have we gone seven years beyond that since Jesus died? Almost gone like 2,000 years beyond that, right? So how does this work? How does this, is this prophecy kind of a real literal prophecy? I'm going to jump ahead and just say this. In the prophecy, there are gaps of time. We'll show you factual gaps of times in these verses that are very clear. You understand that. And your last seven years of the prophecy are the what, what time period? The tribulation period. We've got to stop. We'll pick up next week, okay? And show you how this all ties together and give you the stats from Scripture. Thanks for listening.